Well, good morning, Prince Avenue, and it is amazing what God is doing around the world through the International Mission Board. Uh, David Platt, who just left as president, one of my dearest friends, and what he shared there is absolutely true. We have one of our sons works at the IMB, and so I get to hear regularly the unbelievable things that God is doing through us uh, as we send men and women out all around the world. It is a great time. Uh, in spite of all of the evil in the world, to be serving the Lord Jesus and to see the gospel go forth in power and to do what only the gospel can do. I am uh, thankful to be here. I am a off-the-scale, over-the-top Georgia Bulldog fan. Uh, it was God's grace that last year during the national championship, I was in Spain uh, doing mission work because had I been here watching the game, I most certainly would have committed suicide. It would have been far more than I would have been able to bear. Um, I don't know about you all, because I know you're a deeply spiritual church, but uh, at Southeastern Seminary this week, when we have chapel on Tuesday and Thursday, uh, I will almost certainly gather our students together to pray uh, for the defeat of the evil empire to the west of the state of Georgia, and if you don't know what that is, you need to get saved. So anyway, now to what really matters. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, often said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, wrongly understood, that statement can send a lot of us on a guilt trip. But rightly understood, I believe it's incredibly liberating. Now, what I want to do today is show you how it's very clear from the Bible that indeed every one of us can be a missionary for the cause of Christ wherever it is that God plants us and wherever it is that God might send us. So I want you to take your Bible and join me in the shortest book of the Bible, and I'm sure all of you immediately are making a beeline to what book? Third John. In fact, on the way over here, I was picking at my wife and the couple that came with us, dear friends, Joe and Sheila Forrester, and I just said, well, it's not that hard. First of all, there are five one-chapter books in the Bible, Jude 25 verses, Philemon, 25 verses, 2 John, uh, 14, 15 verses, depending upon the translation and how they break it down, 3 John, uh, 14 verses, and then there's one Old Testament book. What's the one Old Testament book that's one chapter? Obadiah, Obadiah. But the shortest of all of them is 3 John, which I think is an incredible, incredible missionary manifesto. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to move us through 3 John pretty quickly, and then I'm going to come back after we've walked through these verses and raise a number of questions in the context of are you on mission with God? Now, what we're going to discover in this book is that it revolves around the, the lives of three men. A man named Gaius, a man named Diotrephes, and a man named Demetrius. And we're going to see characteristics in two of them 
that I would pray would absolutely permeate my church as well as Prince Avenue Baptist Church. But there's sandwiched in between the man Gaius and the man Demetrius, a man that is a killer, an absolute murderer of missions in any church, a man by the name of Diotrephes. Now, what is it that we learn about are we on mission with God from these three men? Well, first of all, Gaius dominates the book. Uh, he is talked about in the first eight verses. And Gaius was a man that I describe as having the right passions, or if you like, the right priorities in terms of his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you would naturally raise the question, why is it that you would describe him in that way? And there are four reasons. Number one, he was a man who lived on the spiritual plane. Look at how the book, uh, the book begins in verse 1. The elder, almost certainly a reference to the apostle John, to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. The idea is I truly love you. I genuinely love you. And we will see in just a moment that one of the reasons that John the Apostle had such a tender relationship with Gaius is that he almost certainly had led him to Christ. He was one of his spiritual children. And then look at what we read in verse 2, a simple one-verse prayer. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with you your soul. Uh, evidently, uh, John had received a report about Gaius, a very positive report, a very good report, but he had also had learned that Gaius was having some difficulties physically, and so he wants him to know, I'm praying for you. And his prayer is very simple. I am praying that God will bless you physically to exactly the same degree that you're healthy spiritually. Again, look at it. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. In other words, John knew that Gaius was fit as a fiddle when it came to his spiritual health, and so he could pray that same kind of prayer for his physical health. Now, just imagine with me for a moment that someone were to pray that prayer for you this morning. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I'm going to pick on Josh since he was making fun of me a while ago about my response to emails and coming here to speak because of the luring of a Georgia football game. He was lying like a dog, but that's okay. Uh, we, we will still pray for him. But let's just imagine that I said, Lord, I want you to bless Pastor Josh this morning physically to exactly the same degree that he is healthy spiritually. Now, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing for, for you? John could pray that prayer for God because he was a man that was spiritually healthy and fit as a fiddle. He was a man who lived spiritually, but he was also a man who walked truthfully. Look at what it says in verse 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came. We're going to find out in just a moment. These were missionaries. When the brothers came and they testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. And in essence, verse 4, he just reinforces what he said in verse 3. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking 
in the truth. Now, look at that last phrase. My children are walking in the truth. There's the indication that John almost certainly had led Gaius to faith in Christ. And so John had a special interest in one of his children in the ministry. And so these missionaries that had encountered Gaius had come back. They had given a report to John. One of the things was, what a wonderful brother. What a deeply spiritual man. He's having some physical issues, so we need to pray for his physical health. But you know what? If we were to describe Gaius in a very simple way, we could simply say, uh, Pastor John, uh, uh, the Apostle John, he is a man who walks in the truth. Now, you might say, but Danny, that's odd. Isn't truth something that we believe? And it most certainly is. But in the Bible, truth is almost always also something that you live. There was a wonderful North Carolina evangelist for many years named Vance Habner. Vance Habner was a witty, witty individual. And Dr. Habner used to say this, what you live is what you really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. What you live is what you really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. And Gaius was a man who lived spiritually. He was a man who walked in the truth. But thirdly, he was a man who served others faithfully. Verse 5 and 6, beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. A faithful thing you're doing in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Now, what is going on here? John has sent out missionaries. These missionaries have gone out into the major cities, most likely in Asia Minor, outside of Ephesus, where John is probably living at this time. And as they go out, what they have to do, of course, is find a place to stay so that they can conduct their evangelistic efforts. Well, in this day and age, there were no hotels or motels that you would have wanted to visit. So you would either look for a friend or a family member. And if you found neither friend nor family, you would most often sleep outside. You'd be like a street person. In fact, many times people have said playfully, but with some degree of accuracy, that Jesus was a traveling street person who lived outdoors and slept outdoors most of the time. And that's absolutely true. Well, in this case, these traveling missionaries had gone to a town. They had met a man named Gaius. Gaius said, my home is your home. My bed is your bed. My food is your food. And he brought them in, and he loved them. He cared for them. He provided for them. I have no doubt that he prayed with them and financially assisted them. So they come back to the mother church, like Prince Avenue, and they say, hey, we're going to give a missionary report. And let me say, one of the things that God did for us while we were out doing missionary work, he allowed us to meet some wonderful brothers in Christ that helped us and assisted us, and no one, No one was like this man named Gaius. I mean, he just opened up his home to us and said, you come on in, you stay here, you rest here, I'll take care of you. And so John just simply says to Gaius, you just keep on doing what you're doing. You are doing a faithful thing. You will do well to keep sending them on in in their journey, on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. And so he was a man who delighted 
in serving missionaries faithfully. But then also, and this is, I think, the key verse I want you to see this morning, verse 7 and 8, he was also a man who was giving generously. Verse 7, they have gone out for the sake of the name. And, of course, we know that means the name of the Lord Jesus. He is the name whereby no one can be saved, Acts 4.12. And so they went out for the sake of the name. They accepted nothing from the Gentiles, nothing from the nations. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that, now here's the key phrase, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. These traveling missionaries went out, and unlike some other teachers in that day and age, they did not fleece the people that they taught. They did not receive financial assistance from the lost. In fact, let me just be crystal clear this morning. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, let me say, first of all, we are so honored and delighted and honored that you would take this Sunday morning after Thanksgiving to be a part of the worship time here at Prince Avenue Baptist Church. You honor us and you bless us, and we are so grateful that you're here today. Uh, second thing I would want you to say is uh, we don't want your money. Uh, we don't want your money. In fact, unfortunately, in survey after survey after survey of lost people in America, when they are asked, what do you think the church wants from you? The number one answer overwhelmingly is the church wants my money. Well, let me just be clear. We don't want your money. Because God's work will be done by God's people in God's way. Amen? And God's people will take care of God's work when it comes to the matters of finances. So when it comes to you, we don't want your money. In fact, we don't want anything from you but your presence. What, the fact of the matter is we've got something wonderful that we want to give you called the gospel of Jesus Christ that can set you free from your sins and make heaven your future home and give you a purpose in life that you never can realize or understand as a person who doesn't know the Lord. So we don't need anything from you. We've got some wonderful things we want to give you. And so these missionaries went out. They took nothing from lost people. The, the work that they were doing was taken care of by God's people. And John says beautifully there in verse 8, we ought to support people like these because when we do, we become fellow workers for the truth. My wife and I have been in many countries physically uh, doing mission work. Uh, we have been in, I have been in Liberia, then she and I together have been in the Sudan, we have been in Kenya, we have been in Uganda, we have been in Ethiopia, we have been in Paraguay, we have been in Thailand, we have been in China, and I can keep going on for a long time. So we've been in a number of countries physically, but we've been in every single country in the world through our giving. Every country. We have had a part in evangelizing every country in the world and every reached people group to this moment, not by our physical presence, but by our financial gifts and our financial giving. So where'd you get that as being biblically acceptable? Right there in verse 8, we ought to support people like these because when we do, we become fellow workers for the truth. Would to God that all of our churches would be filled 
with men and women like Gaius. You see, the fact of the matter is, most of us, let's just be honest, most of us will not be called to be physically international missionaries. Most of us won't. I think more are being called than are going, but all of us will not be called. Most of us will not be called to be international missionaries, but every one of us can be international missionaries through our prayers and through our giving. Now, would to God that the book ended right there, but it does not. Because in verse 9 and verse 10, we're introduced, if I can use a Danny Aiken vernacular phrase, we're introduced to a scum-sucking dog by the name of Diotrephes. And when Diotrephes walk through the doors of a church in Jesus' name, we need to pull out a gun and shoot them right between the eyes. Now, I'm just playing. I'm just being facetious. Don't take me seriously there. But these are the kind of guys, as I said earlier, they will kill a church. They will kill a church. You say, why would you say that? Well, look at how he is described there in verse 9 and verse 10. Let me read them and then make a quick comment. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. So when I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who wants to. In fact, he puts them out of the church. I mentioned four things that were wonderful about Gaius. Let me mention four things that are not wonderful about Dr. Feast. Very quickly, number one, he was a man driven by pride. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Actually, the Greek phrase that you find there is very similar to what you read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. We're speaking of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says in everything, he, the Lord Jesus, is to have the preeminence. He is to have first place. The place that rightly belongs only to Jesus, Diotrephes sought that place for himself. He didn't care about anybody else. It was my way or the highway, his agenda over all others. He likes to put himself first. Secondly, not only was he prideful, he wouldn't listen to anyone. John says he does not acknowledge our authority. He does not welcome our input. He does not care what we think. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. I I am very honored to be here today. Very kind of your pastor to invite me here. I love this church. My goodness gracious, this ought to be called Southeastern Seminary South, or you could call our school uh, Prince Avenue Baptist Church North because there are so many students that have come out of this church that are now at Southeastern or have been at Southeastern. So there's this wonderful, wonderful relationship here. And so I'm really, really honored to be here today. But just imagine by some miracle of God, and it would take that, By some miracle of God, Josh had arranged this morning, not for Danny Aiken to be your preacher, but the Apostle John to be the preacher. Now, just imagine that for a moment. Danny Aiken is not filling the pulpit, but the word is out. The Apostle John will be filling the pulpit. I have a question. How many of you think there might be a few more people here this morning? I mean, seriously. In fact, do you think maybe this wonderful auditorium might be inadequate to accommodate all of the people that, in fact, to be honest, even though it's nasty weather, 
if we could have made arrangements to be over at the university in the football stadium that holds 92,000 plus people, do you think maybe we probably could have come pretty close to filling that puppy up even on a nasty, foggy Sunday morning after Thanksgiving? I, I think we probably could. And, and I'm not offended by that. Goodness gracious, I'd be there front row. I'd be willing to camp out for, for, for days, maybe even weeks to, to hear the Apostle John, but you know who would not have been there? Dr. Feast. Doctors would have said, he's an old man. He's a has-been. It's time for him to move on off the scene. Furthermore, I don't like all of his ideas. I don't like the way he emphasizes reaching out rather than reaching in. I don't like the fact that he's more concerned about folks out there than he is about the folks in here. And so John says he simply does not receive or welcome our authority. He doesn't listen to anybody. But it gets worse than that. He was willing to be dishonest and a liar. Verse 10, if I come and the idea is I will come, what he's doing I'll deal with because he's talking wicked nonsense against us. One translation says he is lying maliciously. One says he is a malicious gossip. In other words, Dr. Fees did not let the truth get in the way of his agenda. He would lie and he would be dishonest. But finally, he was a bully. He was just a bully. Verse 9, 10, the latter part, not content with that. Not content with what, John? Talking wicked nonsense. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He refuses to welcome these missionaries. In fact, he stops those who wants to and he even puts them out of the church. Now, we don't know who Dr. Feast was, but what we do know is this. He had a place of position and influence in a church. In fact, his influence was so great, he had the ability to shut down their Great Commission enterprise, their Great Commission ministries, and he had the ability to stop people who tried to oppose him and even had the ability to have them excommunicated from their church funny story. A.T. Robertson, the great, great Greek scholar that Southern Baptist actually produced, when he was serving at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, was asked by their state paper, their state Baptist paper, to write a devotional on 3 John. And so he wrote a devotional on 3 John, and he, in particular, focused on verses 9 and 10 about this guy named Diotrephes. Well, the editor of the state paper wrote Dr. Robertson back. Now, this is back in the 1920s, the teens. So he writes him back and says, well, A.T., I think you'd find it interesting that we recently had 25 deacons across the state of Kentucky resign and ask that they would no longer receive the state paper because you personally attacked them in your article about diocrephes. Now, I grew up in Georgia on the other side of Atlanta in Forest Park. Uh, my grandparents uh, were from Carrollton and uh, Gainesville and are all buried in Douglasville. But they used to tell me when I was a little boy, you know, you throw a, a rock in a pack of dogs and the one that yells is always the one that got hit. So I doubt that there are, just knowing this church's uh, reputation, I doubt there are any diatrophies here today. <coughs> 
But if you're offended by verse 9 and verse 10, watch out. You may be a dog that just got hit by a rock. And I'll just be very blunt. If you are more concerned about what goes on inside your church than outside your church, you're more concerned about keeping the money in here than out there. That's certainly the spirit of diatrophies. And by the way, just so that we know what we're talking about here, several years ago I had the honor of serving on what was called the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we were concerned about the fact that we seemed to be struggling in terms of reaching people with the gospel. Uh, we were concerned about our international mission enterprise, and we should be, by the way. I think if you keep up with things like that, you know that uh, over the last five years, we have gone from 5,600 international missionaries on the foreign field down to 3,500 missionaries on the international field. That's a loss of 2,100 missionaries. You say, how did that happen? Money money and so we did some research and you know what we discovered in evangelical churches bible believing evangelical churches that believe that we have the responsibility to get the gospel to every tribe tongue people and nation on average on average only two to three cents on the dollar that you put in an offering plate ever leaves the boundaries of america let me make it clear so that we understand what I'm saying. You put a dollar in the offering plate. Two, maybe three cents ever leaves America. Ninety-seven cents on the dollar stays right here in the USA. Most of it in our local church. Most of the rest of it right here in America. And sometimes people will push back when I bring that up, and they will say, well, Danny, there are lost people in America. And believe me, I know that there are lost people in America. That's not the issue. The issue is not lostness. The issue is access to the gospel. The issue is not lostness. The issue is access to the gospel. My goodness, I live in North Carolina. There are more than four thousand southern baptist churches in north carolina there are not four thousand evangelical believers in the country of turkey with a population in excess of 70 million there are six thousand sixteen thousand people groups in the world today there are over 6,000 that the IMB would categorize as unreached or unengaged, which means this. Even today in 2018, with all of our resources, with all of our technology, with all that we have, 3.6 billion people still have either no access to the gospel or limited access to the gospel. Which means, as we teach our students in our mission classes at Southeastern, there are still today places in the world where you and I could go, be dropped by a helicopter or a parachute, hit the ground, we start walking, we would walk days, weeks, months, we would never see a church, we would never even meet a Christian. 
And folks, if the Bible is true, and I know that this is a church that believes this book is true, then let's just be reminded one more time. That means there are billions of people that are living in the world today. They have been born. They will live. They will die. They will go to hell. And not even one time did they ever even hear the name of Jesus. I know that has to be unacceptable in heaven. I believe it ought to be unacceptable for you and me as well. So for time's sake, I'm not going to look at the good guy by the name of Demetrius, who I think was a missionary who had actually brought the report back to John, and then John sent him on to bring this letter to Gaius. I'm not going to talk about him. I just want to raise some very simple, practical questions for us just to meditate on this morning as I bring uh, my time to a close. Questions I ask myself on an ongoing, regular basis when it comes to being a Gaius and being on mission with God. So just think about these as we move to close. Number one. Do I model Great Commission Christianity before my children and my grandchildren? Do I personally model Great Commission Christianity before my children and my grandchildren? God has blessed Charlotte and me with four sons. We now have the blessing of 12 grandchildren, six grandsons and six granddaughters. And when they look at me, And they look at Lottie, that's her grandmama name. When they look at granddaddy and Lottie, do they see someone that lives out before them? Would they say, my my granddaddy is a great commissioned Christian by just the way I live my life and the way I conduct myself? Do we model it? Secondly, and this is really hard, do you pray that God would call your children or your grandchildren to be international missionaries? Do you pray that God would call your children or your grandchildren to be international missionaries? You know what I've learned as a granddaddy? <clears throat> it's easier to pray for your children to be missionaries than it is your grandchildren. It is easier to pray for your children than it is your, than it is your grandchildren to be missionaries. In fact, just again, just full disclosure, One of the greatest hindrances we run into with our students that get get bit by the missions bug is the opposition that they receive from their parents. It's an amazing thing to me. In fact, several years ago, I found out just how bad this was. I had a friend that's a student pastor at a wonderful Baptist school in another state. He called me one day just to lament. He said, I just need to kind of just share my heart and just get some things off my chest. And I, I said, sure. He said, you know, I, I'm frustrated. I said, well, why are you frustrated? He said, well, you know, these parents bring their <clears throat> kids to our school. You know, they come in when they move in. And we'll have interaction with the parents. And the parents always come up to me as the student pastor of the campus. And they say, now, I want you to take care of my babies. Take care of my baby." And make sure you keep them from the big evils of of alcohol, drugs, and sex. Make sure alcohol, drugs, sex, at least till they get married, keep that away from them. Make sure they know that that, they just, get them in a church now. Get them in a church and you make sure they get involved in a student group. And he said, Dr. Aiken, we try to do all that. 
We try to keep them away from alcohol. We try to keep them away from drugs. We try to tell them that they ought to save themselves for marriage. And, and we have things on campus. We have campus spiritual emphases, and we have D groups and all these kind of things. And he, and he said, here's what happens. They come to our campus, and we have missions week. And missionaries come in and share what God's doing around the world. And they challenge the students to pray this wonderful prayer. Not, Lord, should I go, but, Lord, why should I stay? With the need so great around the world, Lord, why should I stay here? And he says, guess what happens? God gets a hold of their hearts. And so they call mom and dad on the phone and they say, Mom, Dad, I, I need to tell you something. I'm changing my major. And they're like, my goodness, I knew you would do this, but already? I mean, can't you at least do it? Well, I'm changing my major, and I'm not going to go into, into pre-law. I'm not going to go into business. I'm not going to go into pharmacy. I'm not going to go into nursing. I'm not going to go into business. I'm going to become a missionary, so I'm going to change my major, and I'm going to become a, a Christian studies major. And so the parents kind of just out of shock, kind of just meander their way through the conversation. But the next day, they call this student pastor, this campus pastor, and he says over and over and over, I've had parents say to me, what have you done to my kids? I didn't ask you to turn them into a fanatic. Parents, grandparents, don't you want your kids to be fanatics for Jesus? I do. And it's not easy because I, like, really love my grandkids. But then I remind myself, would I rather have my grandkids and my children living across the street from me out of God's will or thousands of miles away loving Jesus and in the center of God's will? I'll, I'll take the latter like every single time. Do you pray that God might call your children and grandchildren to be international missionaries? Very quickly. Number three, do you have a mission savings account for your children or grandchildren? Heck, the Mormons do it for their kids. Why wouldn't we do it for ours? Now, let me just say what I just said again. Do you have a mission savings account for your children or your grandchildren. So, well, I have one for them to go to college. Well, that's great, but what about missions? What about you being the one that provides the bulk of the financial support for the very first mission trip that your children or your grandchildren ever take? Number four, do you have the work of the Lord in your will? Do you have the work of the Lord in your will? And if you don't, why not? Why not? Now, maybe you're here this morning, you would say to me, well, I never thought about it. Okay, I understand that. I'd never thought about it. In fact, I'd never thought about the mission savings account thing either. But I was at a conference one time, and a pastor got up that I love and respect, and he talked about the fact that he and his wife had set up a missions savings account for their grandchildren. I thought, what a great idea. So Charlotte and I now have a mission savings account for our grandchildren. And then I was again at a conference one time, and I heard a guy just simply make this statement. Have you ever thought about making the single greatest gift to the work of the Lord that you would ever make on your death? And I thought, well, that's a rather morbid idea. But then he said, no. 
put the work of the Lord in your will. And when you die on that day, you will probably have the opportunity to make the single greatest gift to the work of the Lord that you will ever make in your entire existence. And I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. So my wife and I sat down, and we sat down with our four sons, and we said, we're thinking about putting the work of the Lord in our will, and what do y'all think about that? And all four of my sons said, we think that's a great idea. Dad, you do whatever you want to do. Whatever's left, we're fine with that, but you do whatever you want. And so, again, just as a matter of confession, the day that I die, whatever I have, whatever Charlotte and I have together, 25% of that goes to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And if God continues to bless us in our older age now, I turned 62 on January the 2nd, we will make overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the largest gift that we will ever make to the work of the Lord on the day that we die. Why would we not do that? I read about all these philanthropists in America today, most of whom were lost and they're leaving 50% and 70% and 90% of what they have to some wonderful philanthropic cause like medicine or clean water or education. And I'm all for all of those things. But why would lost people be willing to give all their money to stuff like that and we wouldn't give our money to reach people with the gospel? So I've not thought about it before. Well, you can think about it now. And just think about putting the work of the Lord in your will. And then finally, are you generous and even sacrificial in your yearly giving to the work of the Lord? You see, it is true. When you give to Lottie Moon or you give to Annie Armstrong or you give to some other mission calls, you are absolutely making an eternal investment that will pay eternal dividends. And there will be people in heaven through the sovereign working and providence of God who will be there because you and I were willing to be generous and even sacrificial in our giving, in our praying, and in our sending. One of my heroes um, is a man that lived in Great Britain, London. Uh, he, he was a genius. In fact, he was an honors student in engineering, and he was an accomplished concert pianist by the name of James Frazier. James Frazier was about to enter his senior year at the University of London, and he had a remarkable future mapped out for him. I mean, he was going to be hired by a leading engineering firm there in London, and he was going to continue his skills as a pianist. But in his senior year, he was given a little track, a little booklet entitled, Do Not Say. James Frazier read that booklet, and it so got a hold of his heart that James Frazier did not become an engineer, nor did he continue as an accomplished concert pianist in London, Great Britain, but he made his way to the Himalaya Mountains in western China, to work among the Lisu people group, L-I-S-U. I refer to them as the Chinese hillbillies because all of these peoples are in mountain ranges 10,000 feet and higher. And James Frazier would go there and listen, five years before he had a single convert, 
Many times he thought about coming back home as a failure. In fact, his daughter in the wonderful book, Mountain Rain, that talks about her father's ministry there, said my dad on a number of occasions even contemplated suicide because he was so uh, inept and such a failure. But he stayed and he stayed and he stayed. And he preached and he preached and he preached. And today, according to the International Mission Board, there are more than 300,000 Lisu believers in the western Himalaya mountains because of the ministry begun there by a man named James Frazier. What in the world did James Frazier read in that little booklet, Do Not Say, that altered the course of his life and in many cases altered the course of eternity for many, many Lisu? Here's what he read, and I close. A command has been given, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously, for we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today, to find millions of people unevangelized and looked as, of course, he would look to us for an explanation. I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I am certain, most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such a good conscience now, we will be wholly ashamed of them then. Brothers and sisters, I know you know this, but just by way of reminder, the Great Commission, it is not an option to consider. It is a command to be obeyed. So let's be an obedient people and stand back in amazement and see what our great God will do through our prayers, through our giving, and if called upon, through our going. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this man named Gaius. What a wonderful, great commission Christian he was. Lord, as far as we can tell, he never went anywhere. He just stayed where you planted him, and he prayed for the nations, and he gave that the nations might be reached. He loved on missionaries who went taking the name of Jesus to those who had never heard. Lord, we all have a role and an assignment to play in your great commission plan. So, Lord, help us seek it, find it, and then, Lord, with enthusiasm, joy, and, yes, sacrifice, Pray and give and go that others might know what we know, the wonderful, precious salvation found only in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for raising up a man like Gaius. Lord, please raise up millions and millions more that all may hear, all may know, and millions and millions may believe. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name.